I see it in the scheme of life. You know, it's really, it's running, it's a sport. It's, it's a beautiful gift, um, but it also has to have the proper place in the rest of life. Welcome to episode 109 of the Running On Own podcast. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I'm excited to have Alicia Shea, professional runner, coach, and nutritionist on the podcast. The Running On Own podcast is founded upon the belief that by sharing the stories of innovative minds, it can spark your imagination and deliver encouragement in your path. For me, hearing the different stories of yoga teachers and runners has been really transformational in my own journey and one of the core reasons why I started this podcast, to give back to all of you. If running on OM has been a part of your life, maybe this is your first time tuning in or you've listened to over 100 episodes, I'd love to know what you think about it. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll help me better this podcast and also help Running on Ohm gain more visibility on the iTunes interface so that more like-minded people can find it. In today's conversation, I talk with Alicia Shea about running as a gift of giving. Although a lot of people, including myself, will discuss a talented athlete's performance and just attribute it to their natural gift, Alicia reveals a different type of gift that running gives, a gift that requires hard work, passion, and a love of the sport. Alicia is a really accomplished runner. She was a two-time NCAA 10,000 meter champion, and in her third collegiate race, she set the former NCAA women's 10,000 meter record. After college, Alicia and her husband Ryan both trained hard to qualify for the 2008 Beijing Olympics. During the 2008 Olympic marathon trials, her husband Ryan unexpectedly died. Ryan's death and subsequent injuries Alicia faced really challenged her relationship with running. After a heartfelt journey, Alicia's life is now full of running and she gives back so much to the sport, whether it be as a coach, nutritionist, host of the Shea Hostel, also known as her home in Flagstaff, Arizona, which has become a sanctuary for endurance athletes to train at altitude in, or in her own running on Nike Trail Elite Team. Alicia has a really powerful story and wisdom to share on running as a gift of giving, and I'm honored to have her on Running On Own. Welcome, Alicia, to the Running On Own podcast. Well, thanks for having me. What inspired you to first start running? I initially started running just to stay in shape for other sports. It was kind of a, a means to an end. So I played basketball, and I thought the the, the more I could run, probably the fitter I'd be um, and have more endurance playing basketball. So that's kind of what got me into it to begin with. When did you end up focusing on running solely? Not until my junior year of high school. And how did you make that decision to really buckle down? Well, I grew up in a small community in Wyoming where um, there wasn't a lot going on outside of sports. So there was a huge emphasis on um, sports and just a lot of community support and um, just something that was taken very seriously. And so I got to a point where... It was like I just couldn't do two sports. We had two-day practices for basketball and running, so I kind of was pushed in one direction. I stopped growing, um, so that started limiting my basketball abilities. I, like, capped off at 5'5", five, five, 100 pounds, so um, I thought maybe it was a better in terms of looking towards college and 
potentially getting scholarships that I probably had a better chance of running. And then somewhere along the way, I just really grew to, to, to love running and um, became very passionate about it. But initially it was kind of like, well, I like both, but I'm kind of, looks like I have more opportunity in one. But yeah, eventually I, I just, it became a matter of like, uh, I just enjoyed it more. What was the transition like going from a small school to Stanford University, which has one of the most renowned running programs in the country? Yeah, it was actually pretty easy transition. I think one because I was just really eager for it. Uh, I, I've just always been a competitive person, like from when I was a little girl, and looked for opportunities to get better and stronger and work harder and just you know drive, push, drive, push. So. Um, when I made the decision to go to Stanford, I knew that I was stepping up into a much more competitive environment. And I wanted that, like, that's what I thought I needed to be better. So, um, I I went in preparing that I was, um, like that I'm probably going to like get my butt kicked for a while and it's, it's going to make me stronger. So, um, I think kind of having that mindset made the transition pretty seamless. And it also helped that since I did come, I, I, I grew up in a small community, but like I mentioned, it was a really competitive community um, with a heavy emphasis on on sports. So um, I already had that mentality of um, maybe the the discipline um, and the work ethic. So I, I found when I went to college, I actually was maybe several notches above in that regard in terms of like just the discipline that had already been instilled in me and, and what it took to be a good athlete compared to some other um, athletes that maybe were just talented and kind of didn't really work super hard. And then all of a sudden you're in a program where there's talent and people that work hard. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more about that? What do you mean by tangible examples of discipline and of working hard, especially in the sport of running? Uh, so in terms of when I got to college and, and, like what those actual things were. So, well, I guess in high school, I was used to getting up at 5 a.m., doing my first morning practice, and then practicing after school until it was, you know, practice is over, go home, do homework, go to bed, and kind of repeat and do the same thing. And I I was, like, okay with that. So when I went to college, I had um, one coach that was recruiting me told me, you know, there's, there's kind of like three options you have in college. It's, um, being a student, being an athlete and having social life, but you can only really choose two of those if you want to do well. Um, and I kind of took that to heart. Like I went in with kind of my blinders on a little bit, like I'm here to be a good athlete and I want to get the most out of my education and like social life kind of revolved around those two things rather than, like the typical college social life. So I, I just went in knowing like, all right, there's going to be all sorts of distractions, but here's what I'm zeroed in on. And this is what I want and what I want to get out of it. So I wasn't really, I never really went through that freshman period of time where it's like, you know, you just, there's so much going on. And I don't know. You're getting sucked into this and that and late nights and different schedule, different eating, like whatever it is. I just, I don't know. I was, kind of a a little bit different in that regard. I went in focused on what I wanted. Yeah, I mean, you did accomplish pretty big things in college. I know you have the former NCAA 10K record. Unpack that race for me. Does it stand out for you as one of the more memorable ones of your collegiate career? You know, it's um, it's interesting because it, it, 
actually wasn't um, at the time. It ended up being a race that I was running to get the um, Olympic A standard. So that was the year of 2004 Olympic trials. So the whole purpose of the race was to get that A standard so that if I, if I made the Olympic team later in the summer, that I wouldn't have to then go chase that standard after the trials. So the time I needed to hit for that, I can't even remember, it was maybe under 32 minutes at the time. Um, so that that was the whole point of the race. And the way things kind of shook out, like I fell off pace and just kind of, it was like one of those races where, um, like mentally I feel like I kind of let go. Like in a 10K, there's so many laps around the track that if you get caught in no man's land, it's easy to fall asleep. Like it's the same way with a marathon too. If you get gapped and you're just out there, um, it's easy to kind of slip off the pace and feel like you're running hard as you can, but you're not really. And um, you stop competing basically. You're just finishing. And so it was like one of my more frustrating races because I once I realized – um, I was off the pack of the professional women that were out of college that were going for the standard. I was like, ah, I just got to finish the race and, you know, try the next 10 K I get in. Um, so I finished and I was just really bummed out. And then somebody told me, Oh, you, congratulations. You broke the, um, collegiate 10 K record. And I didn't even have a clue what it was. I wasn't aiming for that. I didn't know what it was. I was just so angry at myself that I had kind of, fell apart mentally and not made tactical decisions that didn't put me in the race to compete. So, um, but, um, I guess that's a nice consolation to get out of it. That's kind of funny how during it, you really had no clue that you were on record pace and afterwards. You <laughs> it was probably... one of the few races where I felt like I gave up. Like I kind of, I, I didn't, I didn't put myself in a good position to, um, the the Stanford invite is it's kind of known for being big races where you can it's like a time trial you just get in you just jump on the back of a pack and you get sucked into a good time so I was really frustrated that I didn't take advantage of that um kind of that environment and that situation and yeah it was like one of the few races in my career where I'm like I think I kind of gave up in that race <laughs> I know you're a coach now, and what do you say to athletes and runners out there who deal with that lack of, it's not motivation necessarily, but it's giving up during a race? Well, I think it's important to realize that no matter how much you can plan a race out and um, what decisions you're going to make within the race, things change, and um, you have to be able to adapt. So in that situation, I was kind of fixated on one scenario like these women are going to go out at a certain pace I'm going to latch onto the back of them and I'm just going to you know have to kind of grind it out and um like that's exactly how the race is going to go and when something happened where I got gapped I wasn't prepared for that so since kind of my a goal went out the window I didn't have a backup plan and I think anytime you go into a race you have to be prepared for a few different scenarios and kind of know mentally and physically what your weak links are and um and and be ready to kind of buffer them in quickly so if you do get gapped and you're like ah, I'm in no man's land like okay then what's what's your next kind of motive like all right let's 
find a certain pace and like stick to that pace every lap or, you, you know, whatever the scenario is, but just to having different strategies to keep your mind engaged so that physically you can pull the most out of yourself. I think that's really on point. Mm. Post-college, I know you dealt with your husband Ryan's death and I imagine really changed your relationship to running. Speak to me a little bit about that journey for you. Sure. So um, backtracking a little bit, the end of college, I ended up getting in an accident that um, took me out of running. So when I met Ryan, I was I was still running, but I was kind of on my way out as a runner. Like my time competing was coming to a close. And then right before Ryan passed away, um, I, all my health issues that were going on just kind of like cleared up dramatically overnight. So, um, I started competing again and it was both Ryan and I's goal was the 2008, um, Olympic trial. So for him, that was a marathon for me. That was to track. Um, when he passed away, I think by default, um, part of my dealing with the grief, um, was to naturally turn to running and just kind of like pour myself into that and keep training for the Olympic trials. Um, I think maybe it could have been a healthy way to help me work through things, but really kind of became a mechanism to just train super hard. So I'd kind of get so tired. I'd just be like a little bit numb down and like day to day. It was like, that was my coping mechanism is to just bury myself in training. So I got, really fit um and then obviously I was kind of right on that edge of being fit and just being broken and um I eventually tipped over and just my body just kind of fell apart and it was it was really frustrating because I think um myself and a lot of people in my life would have liked to seen something positive happen at that point in time in my life you know like for me to be able to keep running and give a shot at the Olympic team but um in hindsight I think it was the best thing that could have happened to me because it forced me to step back and really um have to take a time of peace and quiet and rest in my life and really um just work through all the um the different emotions and just kind of realities of my life that were setting in one at a time and um I I I think I was just uh it it was only a matter of time before that happened and so when it did I I think it was good that I my whole life had to come to a standstill and it was like all right it's okay to have to confront this this is a really hard thing so I'm gonna I'm gonna grieve and um try to figure out how to get back on my feet again and so um yeah, it was it was hard having running taken away from me that time because it's I felt like my whole life had been taken away and then kind of running on top of it was a little it was just um salt in the wound, but I think for me as a person moving forward it it was good that it happened that way and it also when I finally was able to start running again several years later, it really gave me a different perspective on the sport and what I want out of it and um yeah it's it's much less of a um I I don't take it for granted as much now and it's also I see it in 
in the scheme of life. You know, it's really, it's running, it's a sport. It's, it's a beautiful gift, um, but it also has to have the proper place in the rest of life. Wow, you just dropped a lot of wisdom. I mean, I think <laughs> when you were talking about kind of the experience of numbness and running as a way to numb yourself, I think a lot of people mm-hmm. have experienced that because it is something that is so addictive running and it can make mm-hmm. you feel so good and bring you that high as well as allow you to escape from the realities of your life. And it's such an experience of freedom, but it can really also be used in a tricky way. Absolutely, yeah. Um, a driven competitive person and also the society that we live in, I think really prides people on, you know, like kind of being tough and pushing through things. And what I realized is this losing a spouse is not something you push through. That's like, it's real. It's like, okay, for it to be sad and for it to hurt and to not be, um, extremely, tough through it all in the sense of like how we value toughness, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, a it's a loved one loss. Like it, it should have an impact in your life. So using running to, um, kind of numb that it's, it's really silly. Like when you think about it and you step back and, and that goes with any, um, you know, any, any trial or difficulty that we're walking through in our life, like that's an unhealthy use of a, of a beautiful gift of running. Totally. And I mean, I see it as a gift of our bodies that we have. And I think what you've spoke to is being able to reframe it in a space of gratitude. You know, you're saying coming back to the sport, you've experienced gratitude of being able to run and you're experiencing it now in a, in a whole new way, which is so beautiful. Yes, Absolutely. For you, I know the power of the running community has been instrumental in both your healing, your grieving process, and I imagine re-entering the sport in a competitive way. Speak to me a little bit about how you've created community surrounding the sport and your house and how you've done that. Well, I've been fortunate. My whole life in sport has been kind of rooted in the community that surrounds that. So I initially grew up rodeoing which is very much so like a family-oriented community sport. Um, And then with running, that's just naturally occurred. I, from college up through post-collegiately, I've been in training groups and um, kind of always, I don't know, it's like I talk about this with my freshman roommates. Like they were so nervous to come to college and meet people and um, meet new friends. And I'm like, oh, that's crazy. I never even thought about that because, you know, you're just, like I was on a team and those are your friends and that's your community and your family. And you just always have this built in like safety net, um, within our sport. And I think that's a really unique and beautiful thing. And, um, I've never seen that more powerful than when Ryan passed away that, um, these weren't just people that I went out and I did training with, um, but they were people that cared deeply about my life, like not as a runner, but who I am. And, Um, and so that just really knit together my, specifically my Flagstaff community really tightly. And that was like the main reason why I didn't leave Flagstaff is because I just felt like, gosh, I have my, my, my family, but I also have like this family here and I feel, it feels very safe. And like, this is where, um, yeah, I don't know, just a safe landing when, um, 
you get knocked down. And so moving forward, I've always, I don't know, I, I kind of feel ownership to foster that now and um, help people not like necessarily just in their training and racing and altitude stints and flag staff, but just really invest in them as a person and in their life and where they are and value them, um, you know, within under the umbrella of running, but just who they are and where they are in their life. So I've since 2009 or eight had a house where I have just kind of a revolving door of runners or triathletes or different types of athletes come into Flagstaff, whether to stay for a short stint or a long stint and just kind of, yeah, open my doors and, um, have people stay here. And I usually have a full house, which is just seven bedrooms. So, um, got the opportunity to meet a lot of, a lot of different, um, folks over the years and, um, yeah, it's been a big blessing. I don't know that I'll always continue to do that. I think I can invest in the running community in different ways and been a nice season of my life, but, um, maybe I'll do something different moving forward, but I still like hold that same, um, hold to that same, um, standpoint of like, I just, I love this community and it's my family and I'm going to like fight to keep it that way. It's incredible to me that you've spoke of the running community giving back to you, but I mean, with your house and with what you're cultivating there, you're also giving so much back. Guess it goes goes round and round both ways. <laughs> I know another part of your giving back and being a teacher in the sport is coaching. Do you mm-hmm. coach privately? Do you coach collegiately? How does that work in your life? Um, yeah, I coach. Um, I do private coaching, private online coaching. And, um, anywhere from junior high up to masters runners, um, all different levels, abilities from 800 meter runner up to ultra marathoner. So, um, that's something that I've, I enjoy a lot more than I thought I would have before I started. I kind of got sucked into coaching one person and then it's like, oh, I really like this. I think it's just cause I like this person. And then. Um, it's just kind of built and grown from there. Now I'm, it's just something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. Like I, um, I, I, I saw myself more in a clinical setting with my um, educational background, but now what I've realized is it's actually like the people I like investing in other people's training and running and pursuit of their goals, but it's more like you're investing in that person and where they are at that point in time in their life. And I love that. Yeah, and it's kind of coming back to something you said earlier in your own journey is seeing yourself as running as just one part of your life instead of being like Mm -hmm. all of your life. And the same thing as a coach is being able to honor the runner and not just think of them as a runner. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, being a good coach is being good with people and um, and being a part of their their life process. And and running is just kind of like where that it's the focal point, but really it's not. So, um, yeah, I, I love that. I know another part of your coaching is you do nutritional consulting and Mm -hmm. I, there's a lot of people right now preparing for marathons, especially Boston marathon in April. What kind of advice do you give for marathoners in particular about their nutrition? I think one of the biggest mistakes that, um, 
that runners make, especially marathoners, is they get so caught up in in small details and especially the details of race day and race day nutrition is very important but what they lose sight of is your best sports nutrition is day-to-day good basic nutrition you know it's not necessarily rocket science it's taking care of yourself day in and day out and then what you do the day before and the day out is it's just kind of the final touches um so my number one piece of advice would be good day-to-day nutrition, you know, your whole marathon segment. You're asking a lot of your body, so you need to put good fuel in. And um, if people need guidelines for that, you know, to seek out um, a sports nutritionist. Or um, if they kind of have a general idea of what to do, then it's like, well, it's time to buckle it down and actually do that. And I think people will find it more rewarding than they think. Like, they'll actually enjoy how they feel when they eat better. Um, my number two, probably most important piece of advice would be that what you do the day before a race day should be something that you have extremely dialed in. Just like you should know if you want to run, you know, a three hour and 30 minute marathon, you should know exactly what that pace feels like. You should practice that leading up to the marathon. So with your nutrition, you should have that dialed in and you should the day before the race, you shouldn't be thinking, I wonder what I should do. How often should I take gels? When should I eat breakfast? That, that should be practiced out. That should be your, your long runs and your hard workouts in that marathon segment should be a dress rehearsal for race day. So, um, really practice that because everybody is a little bit different. Like there's general guidelines that we should basically follow by, but you know, when it comes to what to eat the morning of, like everybody's going to be a little bit different. So, um, get that nailed down before race day. For yourself, ultra running is a world where nutrition plays a huge part because you are on the trails for hours. And that's, I know where you are right now is in the trail scene. How did you make that Mm -hmm. transition from road and track now to ultra? Yeah, it's actually, was, um, a little bit more difficult than you would think it would be for somebody that advises people the right things to do. Um, I, I've had a hard time basically just transitioning to like actually having to be mindful of it because as a track and road runner, like nutrition while I was running didn't really play that much of a part. Like maybe on a long run, take a gel or two, but now it has to be, I have to practice, like, eating on the run, drinking on the run, and um, I can't just go out for a five-hour run and not really be mindful of it, and so it took me, like, two or three, like, really bad, hard bonks to kind of, like, realize, because sometimes I would get away with it, right? Like, I could just kind of go out and not really have fluid or gels or, like, not taking that many calories, and I'd be fine, But living at 7,000 feet and training all the way up to 12,000 feet kind of gives you less of a buffer. And I had a couple, like, just nasty days, like, out in the mountains where I, like, was reduced to, like, sitting on a rock and crying. I was, like, so depleted. And so after that, I was like, all right, I got to get this dialed in. So um, once once I made the mental shift of realizing how important it is, then – Physically, it wasn't that big of a deal. I just started practicing with what worked best for me. And for me, that's gels and, like, chomps 
and um, I really like Bobo bars. They're like these oat-based bars that just, I they taste good to me when I'm running. So um, when I need solid food, that's kind of my go-to thing. And carrying a pack too, that was a huge mental shift for me because I have so many running friends in Flagstaff that are not trail runners and it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like a little bit of a joke to like be carrying a bottle or a pack or something like that. And so to like put on this pack and fill it up with water and um, you know, there was like a couple of times where I thought I saw someone I knew running and I'd like want to take it off and throw it in the bush because <laughs> it was just, it's like a dorky thing, right? Like, you know, why would you need a pack for, um, for a train, but you do for this type of train. So, um, yeah, I just had to kind of make a mental shift and get used to it and embrace it a little bit. So what inspired you to start running on the trails and competing on the trails? Um, a couple of things. I... One had some friends here in town that first, when I first moved to Flagstaff, kind of came around the same time that I did as road and track runners. And they also went through some difficulties in their running career for various reasons and just kind of started dabbling with trail races and they were having a lot of fun and they were like just killing it. They were doing so well because they lived it out to run on trails all the time anyway um, and they enjoyed it. So they were just having a lot of fun. So it kind of like made me a bit curious, like, well, if it's okay for them to do this, like maybe that's something that I can enjoy. Um, and then also, you know, having stepped away from running for so long, um, and then I, I didn't think that I would run again. So when I was able to start running, I was trying to force myself back into the same mold of, track and road racing and that type of training and that type of grind and um that was that was a um a part of my life that Ryan was a part of and so when I came back to it it was really empty and it kind of was like just this constant reminder of his absence you know um we trained together every day like not always at the same pace but we were just always doing the same thing um, and living the same lifestyle, traveling to the same races. And so, yeah, it was just this really sad, kind of lonely feeling. And, like, even when I go to races, um, I just, I don't know, I saw them from a totally different perspective. And so my coach at the time, Mike Smith, who is now the head coach at Georgetown for the women, um, he was one of the runners that came here as a marathoner and transitioned to trails a little bit. And so he encouraged me just to jump in some trail races for fun. He could see that I was struggling and, um, and I, I, I loved it. I've always loved the mountains and, um, kind of had a more adventurous side to me, but that was, those were things that were off limits, um, when I was in college and after college running professionally. And so it just took a while for it to click. Like, well, I, I love the mountains and I love being at high altitude and um, challenging terrain and I love running and I love competing. So when I realized that all of those things could kind of come together and I could still compete, but I could do it in a different way that was like refreshing and brought me a lot of excitement and joy instead of like dread and sadness, I was like, well, then this is a no-brainer. Like, I don't care if I should be a roadrunner um, or if that's, like, where my natural abilities lie. Like, this is what I love to do. And so it's, like, 
kind of like I said in the beginning, when I came back to the sport, I had a different perspective. I, I just realized like, if running is a gift, like, why wouldn't I make it my own? Like, why can't it be like the Alicia version that brings me the most joy and is like an outpouring of, um, you know, just where I am in my life. So that's, that's kind of what helped me make the decision. Looking ahead to 2015, are there Mm -hmm. any trail races that you're really excited about? Yeah. So I kind of have a basic outline in my schedule laid out. Um, this, I have a few key races that I really want to aim for, and then the, the ones in between are still up in the air. And those key races are um, starting with, in May, Transvolcania, which is um, a sky-running race in La Palma. So it's off the coast of Spain and Morocco, kind of right in between. And it's a it's just a competitive European race. It's kind of challenging. It's you basically race up a volcano and then scream down. So it's, it's, uh, it's very technical. It's very challenging. It's different than races we have here in the U S. So, um, knowing that it's going to take a little different type of preparation. So I'm not going to race too much before then. So I can focus on getting my track legs used to running over steep, rocky, um, kind of a little bit more treacherous stream. Um, so that will be the first main race. And then, one that a lot of the Nike athletes, um, I'm on the Nike trail team, and one that a lot of Nike athletes are doing this summer is a race called CCC. It's um, it's part of UTMB in France, which is a um, it's kind of like the marquee ultra race in Europe that time of year. So a lot of us will be going over there to try to to do well and take a swing at European style racing. Um, and it's, a lot of the main trail races are in Europe, so it's just a matter of, like, I don't know, getting the learning curve started, and then after that, there'll be some fall races that I'll do, and then do North Face 50 Miler again next December, so. How are you making your training different in preparation for the European train? Yeah, so starting with, um... I guess the the last few months, one thing that I've kind of forced myself to do is step back from running a little bit, just knowing that once I started training in February, that the races I have lined out, that the key races and the ones in between, it's going to be basically a push all the way through December. So um, I've been doing a lot of ski mountaineering this winter to um, one, just give my legs a break from the pounding, but also really build my cardiovascular and my, my climbing and descending ability. So some people may be unfamiliar with what that is. You basically ski up the mountain. It's like, it's very, very, very hard. Um, you have kind of a different ski binding setup and you, yeah, you ski up and, then you switch around your your boots and your bindings, and you can you can come down like you would normally ski down a mountain. Um, so it's nice because it allows you to get about two thousand. Like where we ski here in Flagstaff, we get about two thousand feet of gain in an hour. So um, to do that in running would be very difficult. So you can get a lot steeper and higher, but the mechanics are very similar. You're building the same muscles and. You're up at high altitude, so you're, you know, changing your blood profile. Um, it's basically like free EPO, 
because you're you're getting that blood boost um, and then also the the aerobic benefit of it so yeah I've been doing that almost twice a day every day for three months and yeah <laughs> that's a lot of hard work um, now running feels easy so I've started to transition back into running and um, it's yeah, it just feels like a breeze. I feel so much stronger. And I've kind of done this based on other runners that I know that utilize this type of training in the winter to get stronger. And yeah, now I'll pretty much just start phasing that out and start running more volume, like a lot more steep, rocky volume. We have the Grand Canyon right outside of Flagstaff and then our San Francisco peaks and then Sedona right down the mountains. So just kind of like all within my backyard, I have great training tools to hopefully get ready for it. That's amazing. That's really cool. What a unique training plan you're embarking on and you've been doing. That's awesome. It's a little bit experimental, but um, at this point in time in my life and running career, I kind of am better about listening to my body and adapting things one way or another. That's huge. Did you have any background in ski mountaineering or have you taught yourself it this past winter? No. Yeah. So I, I learned or I, I started ski mountaineering last winter um, at kind of the, the prodding of another local runner, Rob Carr, who's um, just a tremendous ultra runner. Um, he's, he's just been uh, crushing it in the, the U S scene and he, kept telling me, he's like, trust me, like this, this will really help you. It's what he does in the winter as well. Um, so yeah, he, he kind of helped me get set up and on my skis and then I picked it up pretty quickly and just, I love it too. It's like, it's, it's a really enjoyable sport as well. So, um, I'm sure I'll be doing it the rest of my life, whether there's a training benefit or not. To close up our interview, I have a few fun either or questions. Smoothies or juices? Uh, smoothies. Early bird or night owl? Early. Mountains or oceans? Oh, mountains. <laughs> that one was a given. <laughs> no question. And my final one is if you had a superpower, would you rather fly or be invisible? Oh, I, I think I'd rather fly because I like, I. one of the reasons I like mountain running is because you go up. I like being up above seeing out on the horizon so we definitely fly thank you so much alicia for sharing your story in the podcast of course so thank you for having me thank you for listening to episode 109 of the running on ohm podcast with alicia shea professional runner coach and nutritionist I want to let all of you know about a special opportunity I'm creating for you to ask your yoga and running related questions. My friend and fellow yoga teacher and runner Susie Stefan and me have started a bi-monthly podcast series called Ask the Yogi Runners, where we answer your questions. If you have questions on yoga, running, or how to incorporate both of these practices into your life, email us at asktheyogirunners at gmail.com and we'd love to help answer your questions. Also, if Running on Oma has been a part of your life, maybe this was your first time tuning in or you've listened to all 109 episodes, I want to know what you think about it. 
head over to iTunes right now to leave a review of Running on Ohm. It'll help the Running on Ohm podcast gain more visibility on the iTunes interface and also help me better this podcast for all of you. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a beautiful day.